I'm Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room, the Smoky Fire Edition. This week, Juniper Simonis joins us from Oregon to give us an update on conditions so bad she had to leave her home. But first, let's talk about being out. This week, a new transgender athlete out and about, Quinn, a Canadian soccer player, came out as transgender. Quinn was in the World Cup. Carly, tell us about Quinn. Well, Quinn played for Canada in the World in the World Cup, played in the played in the NWSL, and in fact, played for one of the premier teams, the Reign in the NWSL, and and late last week came out as trans. And and so far from what I've been seeing, at least in the traffic and Twitter, the the response has been overall over the top supportive. Fans have come, fans of the Canadian national team have come out, fans of the W of the NWSL come out. I mean, anytime someone comes out and comes forward, it's never a bad thing. And well, there the was well, there was one it. bad thing. There was one bad thing. Yeah, there was one bad thing that a group of that many journalists and no, everybody out sports included. That, we that we, many journalists yeah. and I was about to mention us, yeah, us yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, we we felt our hands are not clean. Yeah, our our hands are definitely not clean. And no, we fell asleep with the switch too. Didn't do the homework. Didn't do the research. Journalism one on one. All of our journalism professors would have smacked us on the hand with a lot of meter sticks for not doing that. Well, let's not go over not the top doing here. Due diligence. Nothing on their social media indicated a change from their birth name, although they did change their social media handle to just be Quinn or the Quinny Five. So we at Outsports hang our heads. We should have done a better job. We did reach out to say we're sorry. I put an apology into the story and fixed both the headline, the picture, caption, all the stories related to um, their coming out. We goofed. And I think you and I, Carly, know better than most people how hurtful and harmful it is to deadname somebody. Deadnaming sucks. There's no other way about it. I mean, and I mean, as I said, we've been there. I mean, in some of the other things I do in regards working with trans youth and whatnot, deadnaming is horrible because it is a, I mean, it's when it happens over and over and over again, it's, a de- it's death by paper cuts. and. Paper cuts hurt more than being hurt more than being stabbed oftentimes. And imagine being stabbed over and over and over again. And also as journalists, we got to get, I mean, we got to get it right. And there, there's no two, there's no two ways about that. We got to get it right. And we but remember- let's also, yeah, but let's also admit we're human beings. We make mistakes. Yes, and one of do. the things we do when we make mistakes is we own it. And that's what Outsports did. I haven't noticed a lot of other people coming out and saying, hey, we goofed. No, we own it, and and ho- hey, we own it, and hopefully after a time of healing, who knows, we'll get the Quinny Five right here at this podcast. We hope we'll so. Talk of, and we'll talk about soccer and what's next, and because there's a whole bound. I mean, there's a lot of good that can come out of this, and there's a whole bountiful future from what we saw. And on the other, because especially given what we what we're still fighting with and what we're still having to deal with. In regards to things such as what we saw here where we live, where, where we live. And I want to send a quick shout out to the New Haven Board of Education for 
for what they decided to do or what they decided to do late last week by telling Betsy DeVos that, quite frankly, she can go to hell and we will stand for our schools and our school children up here in Connecticut, which as a person who loves kids, loves sports and is trans, I applaud. And I hope that other communities in the state get on the bandwagon. Before you move on, I got to add, let me just jump in here. Yeah. You can you can congratulate New Haven. We should congratulate Attorney General William Tong. But I want to yeah. give a big boo to Governor Lamont. Day 95, day 96, the day this podcast is going to play, that he has not yet confirmed that he is supporting trans student athletes. The last thing he said was, I don't want to lose federal funding. He's putting federal funding dollars for education ahead of the rights of trans student athletes in Connecticut. So he's a big putting- boo to him. No, he's putting – he's basically putting political expediency before all school children in Connecticut. Let's talk about what this is really about. This is not just about trans students in Connecticut. This is about every student in Connecticut because what Betsy DeVos is doing is driving a wedge between our kids, driving a wedge between working class – working people in our state. Mm-hmm. I Boston. have a problem with yeah. that, yeah. and I especially don't like it when kids – are being used as political weapons. We already have an entire, her entire political party is already doing that in this state. I just don't, I don't see those Connecticut Republicans pulling back their fundraising no. drive, which basically demeans transgender youth for campaign cash. And yes, but I know I've said that in four other interviews the, in the last week or so. Yes, and you have. And I'm that. glad you're getting that spotlight, but let's also look at something I wrote last week in Outsports. What DeVos and her department of education's, Office of Civil Rights did was they wrote a letter supporting a gay, lesbian, young student athlete in Memphis, Tennessee, and said that they will investigate homophobia. But on the same day, they wrote a letter to Connecticut saying, if you support trans student athletes, you can say bye-bye to your education funding. It's discrimination pure and simple. Oh, you know what that's all about. That's called divide and conquer. That's the oldest play. That's the oldest play in the book. Yeah, because they're figuring, okay, we can't we can't beat the gays and the lesbians on stuff like marriage equality, but we can sure as heck try and divide and conquer, and then we'll get back to them. That's what it's all about. It starts with locker rooms, then they'll go to bathrooms, then they'll go to public accommodation, and once and they figure once we erase the letter T from those letters, then we're going to get back to the rest of you. And I hope that a lot of people in Idaho don't buy that poll that was done in the Metro Weekly, the LGBTQ paper up in Boise. That came out that finds sixty percent of voters support barring trans individuals from amending their birth certificates HB five hundred nine, and sixty seven percent of voters support HB five hundred, which would ban transgender participation in interscholastic and intercollegiate athletics. And in that's on hold right now, thanks to a federal judge. That's on hold because of a federal judge, but also because of fel- because of a counter lawsuit. By a, by a brave high school kid and a brave student at Boise State University who just wants Lindsay to Keycox. be a Bronco. Yeah, Lindsay, love you. But Shout out. This, is all, this all sounds good until you read the fine print. Guess who commissioned the poll? I have a to group, guess it's going to be somebody bad. Yeah, it's <laughs> called a group called the Women's Liberation Front. You know, a bunch uh, of feminists that are actually funded by, guess who? The Heritage Foundation. If you hate trans, we'll put money in your hands. And that's exactly what they did with the Women's Liberation Front. Front is actually a, a so-called feminist front group that's powered by the white Christian 
reactionary right in this country by the K Street character assassins like the Heritage Foundation. You're not fool. You're not fooling anybody. Certainly not fooling me. And I and I would like to believe they're not fooling the people of Idaho. I would hope I not. see a, I see another slanted Rasmussen poll. Remember when Ken Schultz did that story mm-hmm. last fall? Yes, yes. See, see, I was born. I was born, just not born yesterday. <laughs> see that that and that. You're born this one, way. Were you born yeah, this way? <laughs> I, I was born this way, and I wasn't born yesterday. But that's but that is what they were. That's what they're trying to do right now. They're trying to do it throughout this political year. They're trying at one level divide kids against each other, then divide our rainbow family against each other. And that's something that we really have to be be cautious about. The what you're talking about in your article, great article, by the way. Well, thank you, Mike. What, because what they're see, I find it very interesting that Betsy DeVos, a so-called Bible thumper, is all of a sudden putting, is all of a sudden wrapping her arms around gay and lesbian kids. But they're going to kick trans kids to the curb. Come on. We have a great guest lined up. Biologist, out trans athlete, Juniper Simonis. After this break, plus Star Trek Lower Decks and new details on a new Star Trek movie without any Star Trek characters. No Kirk, no Picard, no Spock, no McCoy, no Buddy. We'll have that after this break. You're in the Transporter Room. And we're back to the transporter room and a very special guest and a very important show tonight. We're setting the coordinates for Oregon. If we can get the transporter beams through all the through all the haze and the skies over Oregon, Washington, and California. Oh, we Coming can do to it. us direct Juniper Simonis. Welcome to the show. And needless to say, you've been through the mill these last few, this last month and a half or more almost. Yeah, uh, it's going on four months now. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. Um, and it's good to be back in the transporter room. Um, uh, it's nice to we loved you having you last time. I mean, yeah. we, we, we think this is just wonderful that you take the time out for us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, and so normally I'm in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, but right now um, I'm actually out of the coast for a couple of days um, getting some fresh air because uh, the situation in Portland is so severe um, that it's like literally off the charts. So the AQI, like the air quality index is supposed to go from zero to 500. And um, we've had readings regularly in the like 550s and 600s or whatever um, over the last couple of days. And um, in particular, some like really noxious gases and stuff are in the air. and like people in like it's hard to work even inside and as somebody who does a lot of like uh sort of scientific thinking about things and stuff like my brain has to be clear in order for me to work um and i was having like pretty severe headaches um and getting kind of flashbacks from the smoke actually and then also like i have um a service dog wallace who's amazing um and needs to get his energy out and it's like unsafe for him to be outside running around um and so uh basically i found a little spot um on the coast and i'm here for a couple of days to just get some fresh air um 
And when we head back tomorrow, you know, it's probably still going to be pretty gnarly in town. Uh, hopefully it'll be heading on, on the right direction, but like it's bad. And I'm concerned for a lot of people in particular, like the folks that were evacuated from the fires, like in Clackamas County, which is just South of Portland and East of Portland. Um, a lot of them were brought into Portland. And so they were brought into these spaces that were like, you know, full of this really bad air. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's a pretty large houseless population in Portland that live outside, um, that live in their cars, that, you know, live in tents, and they don't have any kind of protection um, from this kind of stuff. Like, we're talking about some pretty gnarly, pretty gnarly chemicals. Um, so it's, you know, it's just another thing, because it's 2020, and 2020 just likes to keep adding things to everybody. Um, and it's just another in the level of things that people in um in portland in particular are dealing with this year um but it's been pretty it's been pretty remarkable to see the um the a number of organizations and a number of like loose affiliations of what like kids these days call mutual aid um so like folks that provide um, like medical support or food or um, clothing or whatever it is in sort of a situation that's like, you know, basically kind of available to people as they need it um, and is supported by like donations or whatever. Um, like, you know, the folks that have been doing that around the protests have been able to leverage those networks to support evacuees. And so there's like, there's a couple of really large, um, completely non-governmental um like completely non-corporate um just like pop-up uh mutual aid locations in portland that are being like that are being supported by the channels that were developed in support around the black lives matter protests um and so like even though these folks aren't necessarily like out on the streets um doing stuff they're like helping evacuees and stuff so it's like it's pretty remarkable to see how the community has risen because the um, kind of at every level of government right now, um, like the folks in our region are being failed. Um, and this is like a prime example of it um, where you evacuate folks from a, a really bad situation into another really bad situation and don't prepare anybody for it um, and don't manage it well. Um, and rely on the, the the kindness and the goodness of the neighbors and the community which is there but like isn't this what we have government for isn't this what we pay taxes for um and so it's kind of shocking and sad and really dangerous to even breathe outside like to the point that like healthy people that don't have pre-existing conditions should not be outside breathing at all. Not like not be outside doing exercising, not be outside breathing at all. Or like if you have a like a pulse, like I was on the way out here, I was hearing radio like reports of like already they're hearing or they're getting more people coming in with pulmonary issues. Like this is like it's you know in the context of a global pandemic, like this is just one more thing that people have like that they don't. It's just going to totally mess with everybody's body and especially their lungs. And it's like the last thing that we needed right now. And you know, all the way on the other side of the country, they're getting hurricanes. So like, 
it's it's 2020 and it's coming at all angles and you know here we are but we're upright and we're surviving and we're getting through it well one thing the haze from the from the fires have reached as far east as where we are yeah and i mean that's what i mean i mean quickly i i'm just wondering give me the scientific viewpoint how will this affect COVID response on the oh, West Coast and, and worldwide? How is this going to affect it? Yeah, so it's it's going to affect a lot of things. Um, so the a big concern is just the like the particulates in the air, right? So the like you know the smoke and the the like the the crud that's like the little ash and stuff, right? Like that's bad. Um, the other thing that's really, really bad, though, is that we've been getting measurable um, sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide um, and carbon monoxide um, that's doing like regular cycling. It's They're not like uh, toxic to everybody, like you're going to drop dead levels, but they're noticeable and they're cycling in the way that you would expect based on how, like what's happening out here, which is basically the the fog that i'm seeing out of the coast is acting like a like kind of like a barrier um and uh like because we're in a valley in portland like the the wind needs to push the air out uh up the willamette out the columbia into the ocean and the fog is stopping it there and it's kind of like coming over the top and that's why it's been like really actually kind of cool and like humid in portland um and that's like what's happening is on a daily cycle with like the sun, you get um, that uh, the marine layer that's covering the haze go up and down, right? Like when it gets hot, it rises. And then at night it drops down. And so at night when it drops down, you see these increases in sulfur dioxide. And um, that kind of stuff is really, really scary. Um, like, yes, in the long term, uh, nitrogen and sulfur can like lead to like acid rain stuff. But in the short term, if you have those gases in the air um, at high enough concentrations, which we're not at here, but like if this were worse, um, basically the the sulfur dioxide in the air gets pushed down. It doesn't get dissolved into the rain as it goes down. It just gets pushed down as a gas. And so then the air that you're breathing is a, diff a very different composition than you're used to breathing. Like it's high in sulfur, it's high in nitrogen. That's why it smells like a like your head is in a campfire because of all of those compounds that are coming off. It's not just the ash. And those things destroy the inside of your lungs. So like sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide, like are like they're very reactive. And our lungs are not meant to deal with stuff that, that that's that reactive. And so it just like it's like an acidy kind of chemically burn inside your lungs. So for everything else that it does, it's gonna like make you more susceptible to COVID because it's gonna like, you know, basically kind of, you know, grade you up inside a little bit. But then if you have it, it's gonna like, it's gonna give, you know, it's like if you, you know, anytime you have that kind of a thing where you just, you know, it kind of exacerbates the, the disease that's there because it gives it opportunities to grow. Um, it, like it reduces your immune system because your immune system has to fight like to help rebuild the inside of your lungs from this chemical burn that it just had, right? So like your immune system is fighting that and then can't fight off or 
like can't defend you against COVID. So you might be more susceptible to it or more likely to get a more ex exacerbated version. Like th this is going to be very closely linked. And especially when we're talking about, again, really vulnerable populations, like folks that are houseless or folks that have been evacuated, um, especially like uh, black folks and brown folks in Portland um, and Asian folks in Portland that have been um, uh, like functionally like redlined, but not actually redlined, but covenanted out of spaces that are cleaner air and are stuck in spaces that are like already bad air because they're like along the interstate or they're in particular parts of the city that are bad air wise generally. And then, you know, like you just, it's adding layers and adding layers and adding layers. Um, and yeah, so it's just it's a nightmare scenario. I mean, amazing yeah. Yeah. information that you're providing for us as far as the scientific perspective. What was it like getting the evacuation order? What are your friends telling you um, about what's what they're experiencing? No, so um, thankfully, I didn't actually get like an evacuation order um, per se. Uh, but I feel like that's that's actually kind of an important point to bring up because the way the evacuation orders were put out here was very it was county by county it wasn't really with any kind of like grand like scheme in place that they presented to the population about like here's what we're doing like the incident command was like yeah. um and this will actually tie into some other things that i will talk about um but on saturday for example um the this is the like really the only direct action march protest that's happened since the air quality really started to go bad. It was before it went really bad. Um, it was on Saturday during the day. So it was during, when the air was better. It was the first time they've done one of these actions during the day. And um, it was a march over and around um, the, from the dog park that Wallace and I go to every day. So like we went over and we followed the march around and I documented stuff over to the juvenile detention center and back. And this is the first time that anybody had, they talked about doing one at the juvenile detention center before. It's a very sensitive space to do any kind of direct action around a jail, but especially a uh, juvenile jail or juvenile detention center. Um, so like there was a lot of, like people hadn't generally gone over there before. Uh, but uh, the, the protest went like really, really well from uh, like, uh, they were there for 32 minutes for each of, a minute for each of the um, juveniles who are, are in detention there. Um, they had a lot of really great uh, chants, like what's outrageous, kids in cages. And I can objectively say that that's true, that it is outrageous to have kids in cages. Um, and the country believes that, we know that from polls. Right, like so, it is objectively true that everybody believes that kids shouldn't be in cages, and yet here we have 32 kids in our in a cage in our city. So, like, why are we doing this, right? And it was a very good attention awareing awareness thing. Nobody, it's not to, this is not to discourage or disparage violent protest because that's a okay, um, and in spaces when it makes sense, go for it. Um, this protest was completely nonviolent is my point, right? Like, so like there was no, like there was no violence from either the protesters or the police that were there that could have responded. The police were that were there that could have responded was the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and their officers. 
the Multnomah County Sheriff's, like himself, the sheriff himself, was at the juvenile detention center all day waiting for this protest to come and go. That's not where his office is. Like, isn't he supposed to be like a critical member of the incident response team that's handling like this evacuation and this like like ongoing evolving wildfire and air risks like like severely hazardous air situation like isn't the sheriff's office supposed to be important in doing that kind of work and getting that information out to the public isn't that part of their role and it is and so why is the sheriff like the sheriff at this protest that was completely peaceful in the afternoon at a juvenile detention center instead of doing the actual work that he's supposed to be doing to protect us all from the like environmental like catastrophe that's happening to everybody. Instead, he's going over there to try and get some photo op around a protest at a juvenile detention center. And it's like, what is happening? What is happening? All of these resources, people are doing calculations and tweeting about it. The amount of money that's been spent on different weapons that have been brought here to like punish Black Lives Matter protesters. And then like the uh, the Oregon, uh, like the fire, the people that are fighting the fires, we're like we're having to go like ask for donations for stuff, right? Like we're pumping all this money to like brutalize protesters who wanna express their first amendment rights and not giving any money or the sufficient funds to the individuals who are like going to fight the fires to keep us all safe, right? Like there's not, there's no like accountability when it comes to the air quality. Like I said, like the air quality is dangerous enough to be killing people. And like, there's um like, there are things that you do in those kinds of crises, um, like uh, um, a significant cold snap or hot snap where you have like the cooling centers right? Like for houseless folks and stuff, like get people off of the street. Like there are all these things that the government should be doing right now because of the like well-documented and like individually observable when you go outside health crisis that we're in. Like, why are you spending any time and resources brutalizing people trying to express first amendment rights in support of black lives when you like have all of these other like critical things to be doing? And it's absurd. And it's so scary because like the world is falling apart around us and the agencies in our government that have the most amount of money are the ones that have weapons and don't want to do anything to actually help those of us that are hurting the most. Sorry, I'm getting like really heavy and serious. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly what we should be doing right now. That's the first time I've heard in any reportage that level of outrage that there should be because i'm i'm gonna ask it because you're not just a pretty face and you're not just a four-time world roller derby champion you're somebody who's also a thinker in your mind is this an example that the united states has become a failed state um yeah i actually i i i do um and you know failure Failure is an option. Failure is always an option. And I'm somebody who believes in like trajectories and I don't 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the legal scholar and trans scholar Dean Spade. Uh, I am. Dean, write, Dean writes about um, the fallacy of the progress narrative. Um, it's a piece that I, I read forever ago that like really kind of changed my perspective on stuff when I was like a baby trans. Um, and uh, like the notion that things change and evolve, but they don't necessarily always change for the best. Um, and uh, like getting your mindset in this pro like progress narrative of, of things will get better, like the, you know, the it gets better stuff um, is really kind of uh, naively expecting the world to be evolving in the right direction. And it doesn't have to, it has no prerogative to. Um, people that have ill intent can be evolving the world in their direction. Um, and it's been really interesting to see um, sort of the degree to which um, like basically the individuals that have, um, that are the frontline enforcers um, have a varying degree of legal authority and responsibility. I'm talking about law enforcement agents and government agents. Um, and uh, many of them uh, care not what their legal responsibilities are. Um, and many of them uh, care not uh, for the human dignity of life or the dignity of human life. Um, and so uh, something that's uh, uh, pretty was pretty impactful for me in terms of like understanding this whole situation was when I got kidnapped by the feds and like that's a whole story and like it's a whole big traumatizing story but it's been told elsewhere so like if folks want to know all of the details you know you can link it in the story notes or what or the show notes or whatever uh, we will we'll put it on both twitter and on our facebook page well juniper with that in mind i do want to talk about You've been on the streets documenting the the protests. Some call it the uprising in Portland throughout the entire time. Give me a flavor. What what did you see? What did you feel? What what really went down in Portland? Not not the not the network news version, not the Trump administration version, the boots on the ground from the people version. What went down there? Yeah, so it's been a, um, we're now over 100 days. Um, and right now things are kind of protest-wise on hold, like I mentioned before, because of the like like hazardous conditions outside. Um, but uh, basically my uh, involvement in this this particular movement has been varied um, which has been particularly nice for me as someone who's kind of you know in my mid-30s now kind of getting set in my ways of like my job that I do and whatever to like have an opportunity to like do different things over the course of these hundred days um, has been uh, like refreshing because I'm like getting to like connect to different people and you know kind of like work on different skills and whatever um, and so early on, um, because I'm disabled and uh, uh, like I know that uh, Portland Police Bureau have a history of using tear gas, um, including within the last couple of years, um, basically Wallace, my service dog, and I would go and we were doing marching. 
Like we were, we were basically going to some of these big marches um, within the first couple of weeks. Like we weren't, you know, we definitely weren't out there the first night, uh, probably like within the first couple of nights um, or afternoons. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the first little while, uh, like first couple of weeks, really just doing marching every, you know, every opportunity that we could, um, you know, there are all these uh, neighborhood protests in Portland. Like there's, you know, the big protests people know about, but um, there's like a, a Black Lives Matter calendar that sprung up that had all of the different like, okay, you know, at this, you know, five o'clock at this neighborhood corner, five o'clock at this neighborhood corner, like people will be out holding signs and doing a protest. So we'd go to some of those. Um, there was a, um, a, a stripper strike movement um, that I was in support of. So um, uh, the stripper community is very big. The sex working community is very big in Portland. Um, and there as in a lot of pretty much every industry, there's massive racial discrimination. And so um, there's this really awesome person um, who was kind of like coordinating a lot of this. And so like those marches were over by me. And so like, I went to go get involved with those. And so like, it was kind of like finding my way in different spots. Um, and would also on occasion, like go drop off supplies like, you know, water or snacks or whatever um, at various spots in the protests. So this is all kind of through basically the first month, right? So we're talking end of May to like end of June, pretty much third week in June. Things change considerably the night that there is a protest at the North Precinct. A lot of the protests in Portland um, for the first uh, month in particular happened around um, a two by three block, um, and block is used very liberally here, um, uh, little complex of three parks next to three government buildings. Um, and I got to interrupt because the media made it look like the entire city was burning, and it's really just a small little section, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, like the actual area. And like when I said blocks used liberally here um, in Portland, a block is 200 feet by 200 feet. Um, so like that's very tiny. Um, I come from Chicago. Like that's maybe one block. Um, but here that's six blocks. Right. Um, and, you know, there was, um, you know, basically what happens is the the, you know, the law enforcement agents will like move the protesters around and like deploy chemical weapons and stuff in varying parts of the, the area expands larger than that. But it's really kind of been, especially for that first month, it was really kind of focused down in there. And that's where the, like, it's the justice center or it's called the injustice center by people on the, the street. Um, and it's basically like where the county jail is and a lot of like, uh, it has a lot of significance and it's like central placing, like the central precinct is there for the police, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this one particular night, so they'd started moving protests around a bit to get like creative on sort of locations. Um, this particular night they were holding um, a protest at the North precinct. And this was when they were going to try and establish like a, like a little bit of a zone and just like hold down some more space Um and uh like it wasn't that far from my house and so uh i was like oh hey 
I have stuff I can go drop off for them. I'll go do a supply run and drop off some snacks and some water and some stuff, right? Um, and lo and behold, when I happen to be there and I'm like dropping stuff off and leaving, I see the beginnings of what unfolds in this really ridiculous way, like over the course of the next couple of days. Um, basically, there were fires that were happening. Um, and there were like, there was a fire like in the middle of the streets, like in a dumpster kind of situation. Um, and then some random protester decided, and I'm not, I'm not like admonishing them for any particular reason, like what, like whatever. I'm not saying that they're from Portland or from somewhere else or whatever. Just some random person uh, made the decision to take some fire and put it like kind of next to this building. And this building happened to be a boarded up um storefront that was part of the building that the precinct was in right so it was like a small business owner storefront kind of thing but it was within the precinct um but it was boarded up and basically the plywood was catching fire um and uh people were going to move things away from the fires people like protesters were actually moving cars like picking up and moving cars to keep them away from the fires that had grown out of control. And people were going to put out the fire that was up on, like starting to get on the wall, like on this plywood boarded up storefront and were being like basically shot. I can't remember if it was with impact munitions or what in particular, or what were basically shot and like, or if they were just like batoned or like pushed away or whatever. Cause you know, the police like to do all these different things. Um, but basically, they were shooed away from the burn mark on the building. And then then they were slow to put the burn out so that they had a nice photo op the next day when the police chief held a, a, a press conference in front of that building to talk about the danger to life inside that was created by this fire that somebody set to the building, right? And so the way that the media then takes that is based off of that photo opportunity, which was basically created by one random person doing a random thing. And then a whole bunch of people trying to put out the fire and being prevented from putting it out by law enforcement. Um, in order for them to have a way to tell this story about what happened. And in the media, time and time again, in all of these news sources, as I was reading them, all they were doing was just reporting the press conference. They were just reporting what the police said happened. And I'm on Twitter, I'm fairly active on Twitter, um, moderately so at this point compared to where I am now. And I'm like, I'm following all these people who were like live streaming this stuff. Like I was watching it at home. That's why I knew where I could go. Right. And like, and I was seeing it unfold and there are all these people who are like taking pictures and live tweeting this whole thing as it's going down. And it's like clearly observed and documented what actually happened. But because the police held a news conference where they could control the narrative and got that story out because they have the bullhorn that they have. Um, that was the story that was taken and ran with. 
Um, and we've, we've seen that time and time again, and I've seen that time and time again since then. But at that moment, me seeing that like really kind of play out like that was a very radicalizing moment for me because I realized at that moment that all of the information that was going out to people was incredibly biased and very unchecked. And that in addition to just like putting my body on the line or putting my time and energy on the line, I needed to do something more to actively combat the misinformation, functionally the propaganda that's coming out about what's actually happening. And so for me, that was like a, a radicalization in my need to focus my time and energy and skill set to help counter that narrative problem. The experience that you had with with certain federal agents, how much of that was re, has been repeated in Portland throughout this period? Because I take it because I'm pretty sure you weren't the only one. No. Um, yeah. So for, for those who don't know, um, I'm the person who was drawing the property line outside of the Wyatt federal building when uh, 15 or so members of the border patrol tactical unit decided to come out and kidnap me and assault me and my service dog Wallace. And that's a, like I said before, that's a very long story. We can get in depth on that another time. But uh, the the take home from it for me was like, oh, this is how they treat somebody who's white and is a U.S. citizen. Yes, I was targeted because I had sig significant knowledge. Like I was outing who they were. I had documented up close who they were. I was drawing the property line so we could protest them doing things like throwing a flashbang at Wallace a couple of days before, right? Like they were behaving in a completely non-accountable way. Like we couldn't, we asked all these officials around from these different agencies who these guys were and nobody knew who they were and I figured out who they were. And then the next day I got kidnapped. Um, and so like, I know I got kidnapped because I have an information because I'm visibly trans and disabled but I know that I survived because I'm white and a U.S. citizen. Like, um, I know that um, you two probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, the look in somebody's, it's usually a dude's, a look in a dude's eyes when it's a, like, it says that, like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to kill you. If I have an interaction with you, I want to kill you. Like, as, like, as I clock you as being trans. And if I have to have an interaction with you, like it's going to end in you being hurt badly. There's like that evil stare in their eyes. Um, it's a horrible thing. Um, but uh, like I experienced that multiple times while I was in their care of the uh, custodial care or whatever in their custody um, where like I knew that my life was significantly at risk if I didn't shut up and behave um and uh what i have learned since in figuring out sort of like who i was dealing with and how they operate is that uh so i was basically detained by uh department of homeland security who gets to act in the way that they did because we're at the border 
in Portland, Oregon, because two thirds of the, the US population is within the border because of the um, 100 mile border thing. Um, and so they can do whatever they want within the border. And that's why they snatched me, right? And then they like shove you into custody with the US Marshals. And the way that the US Marshals work is that they can functionally uh, render people, right? Like uh, make them disappear. Like, because they have access to all of the federal jail system, like, if they wanted to, like, I never got a phone call before I was released. If they had wanted to, they could have literally put me on a plane and, like, flown me to Guam, right? Like, or, like, all the way over to, like, the East Coast, right? Like, they literally could have done that before I even had a phone call because of the way that they operate. Um, Or Gitmo. Yeah, yeah, Gitmo. We were thinking, I was thinking that. It's super scary, right? And the thing that's particularly scary um, that I discovered, but I'm not surprised by, is that um, so they've been cited multiple times in their dereliction of duty, basically. Um, but the U.S. Marshals have a particularly bad uh, history when it comes to dealing with uh, trans women uh, who are migrants, who are, you know, asylum seekers, um, housing them at, with men, um, like basically disappearing them at an incredibly higher rate, all of these things. Um, and, uh, like, again, I'm, I'm incredibly privileged and lucky to, to be alive. And I have a lot of like survivor's guilt in some ways. Um, but like the one thing that I realized at some point that kind of, you know, cause you have to, you have to like make jokes about this to like be able to survive, right? Like you can't just like, the collective trauma and the collective joke making around the trauma has allowed me to heal so much in these like these community trauma situations and like so I'm trying to joke around it here as well. Like I'm just really glad that I wasn't their type. Right? Like mm-hmm. like I I am one hundred percent secure in who I am and like I know I'm visibly queer. Like I know I don't quote unquote pass for a cis woman, right? Like I I know all those things, but like Dear God, if I were like a like a very attractive trans woman, like I could be dead or you might not like even if I were white and a citizen, right? Like because of how they behave and their lack of accountability. And so what they did to me opened my eyes about what can happen not just in Portland and was happening in Portland and continued to happen where people would get swiped into vans and stuff and snatched into vans and, and back into buildings, but also realizing that this is actually a strategy that's been leveraged in a number of other places in the U.S. Um, and abroad that are really important context for how these uh, folks are operating. So they do this all the time at the border. Uh, snatch first, ask questions later kind of thing. Um, the U.S. Marshals group that came in um, was uh, the Fugitive Task Force. There was, they were a big part of it. So, again, they're dealing with folks that don't have constitutional rights because they are fugitives of some kind. Um, and then uh, they're, uh, you know, they're using techniques that they used, like, in Watertown after the Boston Marathon bombing, where they shut down the community and any Muslim-looking man they picked off the street without any kind of question. Uh, they did it in the Ninth Ward after Hurricane Katrina, 
um, where like they shut down spaces for public safety and then would just like swipe anybody who was on the street or around um, that they didn't want out there, right? Like there are um, really um, significant uh, international situations where this happens. Um, apparently um, at the Palestinian protests um, in Israel, um, they do this technique a lot. Somebody who I met here in Portland who had been there years ago said that this was a technique they did there a lot where you would just get picked up and dropped off somewhere else um, hours later after the protests were over. Um, and so it's not a new technique and it's been happening in communities and in our communities, um, especially with folks that aren't documented and are known to not be documented. Um, they're snatched like this um, and it's, really really scary and we all knew like when uh the patriot act came into play that a lot of the stuff that was in there might be unconstitutional but was written into executive like um you know policies and practices and stuff it was like a directive but it wasn't necessarily like vetted through all three branches of government and said like yay this is constitutional and you know reading a lot of those things we knew back then I mean, like I was in high school um, and I know from back then from reading it that like it was not a good document for freedoms, right? Like it put in place a lot of like policies like this hundred mile border thing that would allow and like the Department of Homeland Security that can that is not the military and is not DOJ um, and so can act in this gray area that allow there to be a lot of really problematic things that when leveraged can like decimate democracy like just like it can be used to destroy democracy like the possibility like this because they're terroristic tactics right like snatching people off the street is terrorism and so you if you do that in targeted spaces like you do it around protests with the idea that people won't go to the protest because they don't want to get fucking snatched right like that's terrorism right and so like if that technique is like commonplace in you know federal agencies, then that can be leveraged on voting day, right? Like you know, it's really not that hard for anyone to see how the like things are set up in a way that's actually quite unconstitutional because it undermines our own democracy. But with the way everything works in this country, like you have to challenge stuff. Right. Like it, it has to be broken in order for you to show that it was bad. And that's so, one of the things that's happening right now. Yep, I think you've yeah. been following the uh, drama that's been going on last month regarding world rugby. Mm -hmm. And some scientists are basically saying that the science behind the decision by world rugby to propose a ban on trans women athletes is bullshit, is false assumptions. And I was wondering as a, scientists yourself if you had any opinions on what's been going on with the world rugby proposed ban um i i don't know the specifics of the ban but i can like pretty much imagine the details um and my like flat out scientifically based um like statement on the topic of hormones and com competitiveness is get over it uh, <laughs> i um i've said this in other spaces before um i like know you, said, you told us yeah months ago about well, this when you I, like, 
Yeah. Which is like, why I, I asked her. Yeah. I firmly believe that um, hormones make impacts on people. They do not drive competitive advantages and disadvantages in a holistic way that requires any kind of regulation outside from um, significant ex exogenous input. Um, and by significant, I mean like well without what would be well outside of what would be produced in a body normally. So like, you know, we're talking about anabolic steroids, right? Like you're dosing at a level with a chemical that's not normally in your body, which is very different than putting testosterone in your body um, as um, someone who is transgender, who wants there to be testosterone in their body and doing it at a level that makes sense for a, you know, r relative range of humans, like not normal, but like a relative range of human beings, right? Like, and that's very different from like anabolic use, right? So like, from my perspective, um like as long as nobody's doping <laughs> like we are like it doesn't matter and science has actually shown that there isn't the relationship between hormone levels and competitiveness like in so many different ways um that it's really absurd to me that people um continue to try and say that this is some kind of like thing um but you know we're here and there's bigots and my point of like get over it being that i feel like um we need to change the topic of discussion because the longer we talk about hormones the longer we let them like the longer we talk about it in the way that they've framed the conversation the more we're just treading our wheels and not really getting anywhere and like devoting energy to defending something that we all know is true and like we don't need to be defending like and so I feel like um I and I don't know how to shift the narrative like it's a it's a collective thing we all have to do right but and the thing is that you know the people that put these policies in place want to make it around hormones because they want to have something that's like quantifiable or whatever right and then they're like well no no trans people at all and it's like well the policies that should be in place if we're going to have gender segregated sports, which is a whole big if, um, should be self-segregation, right? Like if we're going to segregate sports by like gender, then let folks tell you their gender via their choice. Like that is an expression of their gender of the them choosing one or those one or the other which again is a problem of having to choose between things and especially as a non-binary person myself like dealing with all of that like i completely understand that that's a complicated and like this is not a complicated thing and this is not really addressing that um so putting aside something that really shouldn't be put aside um if we're going to have segregated sports um at least in the sense that um you can belong to one or the other. The individual athlete should be the person who's making the decision because that decision might actually be the beginning of their transition, so to speak. It might not be the end. Like um, a friend of mine uh, uh, a long time ago sort of framed this in a really good way when we were talking about policies and stuff. And she was like, you know, that really forces you to like have have done the historic trope go away and come back and be trans 
right? Or be like, go away as a man and come back as a woman, that trope thing. And like, then you're okay to compete in sports, right? Like it set up this like really weird ideal that like competition in sports is the end of things. And it's like, well, to be quite honest, a lot of us played sports through those periods. And like, how do you, what do you do in the, in those times when you're like, you aren't, you didn't go away and come back. Right. And it's this gray area. And like, holy cow, especially with young folks, that's such a, such a tender period that like individuality needs to be nurtured and curated and like exploration needs to be supported. And it's okay if a young folk like wants to be with the boys one day and the girls another day, like that's okay. Or like we should be encouraging that in folks so that they can figure out who they are creatively and with support. Right. But we're like, we're enforcing this decision um, and saying like, you have to have figured it out and like figured it out to the point that you are, all the way transitioned or whatever to be able to compete or like you just can't even compete at all right and like all of those things are problematic and is something carly you say a lot like problematic not just for trans women but for women in general and you see that you know again coming up with like what happened with caster and like that horrible ruling and again like this is you know like white misogynistic colonialist imperialistic views of bodies and what gender is to come here and say that caster is not a woman right like what is that like what is that except horrible racism sexism like white supremacy like that's all that is and it's that same set of gnarled stuff in a stew that creates all of these other things around trans policies and stuff. They're all drawn from that same thing of defining what a woman is. And that woman is white femininity. That woman is like not, has no athletic build, right? Like maybe like is like more of a waif or maybe is like soft, right? Like is not chiseled. Right. Like it's the same stuff that like somebody like Serena has to deal with. Right. Like when they go out there and are just jacked. Right. And the things that they get said to them about. Or something like this, which is something world rugby brought up. And we have one. I want to hear your take on this. This is what world rugby's study claims. They claim that that if a trans woman tackles a cis woman, that this woman is 20 to 30% more likely to be injured. They got the data from comparing men's men's matches to women's matches. And yeah, they so extrapolated that, the da- and they extrapolated the data based on that. So because of that course, makes trans women no, are men. That makes to me yeah, right well, there that, that 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 goes into what you were talking about. You you're saying that one of the options that they're looking at, and I think this is the option that World Rugby is looking at, is we don't want any trans people anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We exactly. don't want them playing anywhere. So, like, I'm presuming then that they compared, like, men tackling men injuries to women tackling women injuries. So then, like, you're, like, you're comparing apples to apples versus oranges to oranges, right? Like, so it's not just that the person tackling is wrong, right? Because they're using men instead of women. Um, the person being tackled is wrong. 
And um, actually we know that like hormones also impact your bone strength in different ways and flexibility in different ways. And so like, yes, if you're on um, like, if you're on, go from having a testosterone dominant testosterone dominated body to an estrogen dominated body, you might lose some muscle mass or it might change some spots, but you also might gain some flexibility and like gain these like other, like other things that will actually prevent you from getting injured. Right. So it's like, it's not just about who's doing the tackling, but also who's getting tackled. Um, and so it's like, that's not a, like at all an appropriate comparison. Um, and it's obviously, uh, I mean, like point blank, it's, it's a biased selection of results from a study that isn't relevant, um, to the question at hand. So the study does not add any information with respect to does it hurt more if a trans woman tackles you? Um, and um, I don't know, my results are also biased because I'm personal experience, but like I've dealt with this a lot in roller derby because I play a contact sport and I'm a trans woman and I happen to be 6'2 to 20 or whatever. So like I'm not tiny. Um, and like I'm, you know, on the, the starting line of the like world champion team, right? So like, you know, uh, I have like kind of lenses pointed at me and stuff or whatever. And so like, you know, this has come up and I've talked with other people about it. And like, you know, we talk in the community about this and it's like time and time again, cis women will come like flat out and say like, I don't care. It honestly doesn't matter. Like, so who I would trust in this moment are the cis women who know who the trans people are on their teams because they support them including some trans people who might be like still have testosterone dominated bodies or might now have testosterone dominated bodies, but are still playing on women's team, a woman's team, because that's the, like sort of the way the structure works best for them. Right. Like, and so all of these people play against each other. And so like, if you talk to the cis women who like don't come in with an agenda of hating trans people, they will tell you that like, the trans people hit just as hard as cis people and not harder. And like, like there's no, no indication whatsoever that there is any level of injury difference with respect to contact based on cis or trans people. And we're talking about a pretty high contact sport that's been pretty open about trans folks competing even though it's, you know, it still has, it, it, like I've said, it's, you know, it's not perfect. It's got a long way to go, but it's been open about trans folks competing for going on a decade now um, where you have trans women and cis women hitting cis women. And there has never been anything that would, a 20 to 30% increase like that would like, would raise alarm bells or like people would notice that nobody's no, like nothing like that exists. It's a great answer. I, I learned so much from you every time we talk. Juniper yeah. Simonis, thank you so much for joining us again in the Transporter Room. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Are they um, the first are they the first repeat guest, I think? No, we've had we've had other repeat guests, but I'm very grateful to have her as our repeat guest. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean we can get Dapper Stat sponsorship now? I'm just wondering. Oh, <laughs> definitely. I like I think uh so um i i threw down a uh, i threw down an ad do you listen to uh fast forward it's a really great podcast um it's like a, a futuristic uh 
like podcast that's based on science stuff, but it like is like looking forward to like what could happen in the future if lock. Pretty happens. cool. I have to check it out. And uh, because I do a lot of like predictive modeling and forecasting stuff, I was like, ooh, I'm going to sponsor this science show that does future things. So I'm starting to like think about sponsoring stuff. I have happened to just blow a lot of my capital right now on setting up a research lab and I uh, getting a whole bunch of chemical analyses run to um, uh, fight the man who is saying that the chemical weapons that are being used in Portland uh, aren't having any impacts and aren't worth it to worry about. Um, and so uh, my company has spent many thousands of dollars now um, to run chemical analyses to say, actually, this is a big problem and we need to worry about it right now. So um, I am not like flush with cash at the very moment, um, but uh, projects are coming in and things are developing as we go along. So um, well, yeah, let me know sort of what the what the ad structure or whatever kind of looks like. I mean, I don't know how how like, organized oh, i just this. do the news i don't hey, do the ads but got, i do yeah. i do hope you'll stay safe but one thing i'm glad i'm glad we had a chance to mention the project that you're doing right now in talking yeah. about the chemical weapons that's that law enforcement agencies have been using in these protests really concerning and you're, anal and you're analyzing what they're doing and how they're doing it so i take it with all this in mind with the fact that in some ways you are living in a very dystopian environment at the moment, as we all are, I take it you're not, true. you're probably not grooving so to a lot of science fiction or fantasy right now. But if you are, what are you, what are you using from those realms to kind of stay sane and safe in this moment? So, fun fact I'm actually not sane. Um, <laughs> I have a psychiatric disability. So, I mean, like in various ways, I am technically insane. So, and I'm okay with that. Um, I just try to like contain it and things. Um, no, I, uh, that's a really good question. Um, and, um, yeah, we didn't get to talk too much about sort of the, the dystopia that I actually live in right now. Um, because it is pretty intense. Um, and yeah, the chemical weapon situation is really, really bad. Um, and well, we, we've got about a minute left, so yeah. please tell us what you can. Yeah. So, uh, like basically I would say, um, anyone and everyone in a space where any kind of chemical weapon, like tear gas is being used, um, start documenting things as early as possible, get in touch with a, um, or get like a chemistry lab and remember that you're out there because black lives matter and that police are trying to attack you and keep you from talking because they don't want to hear you say that black lives matter. And you need to stand up through that, but you also need to stay as safe as possible, which means finding out what they're using against you. It's a forensic experiment and it's really hard, but you got to start at the beginning. Good luck to everybody out there. I know this stuff is spreading. Um, safety is a privilege. Stay as safe as possible. Um, but be as dangerous as you can be and take the risks that you can to support the black community um, and to really stand up for, uh, for black lives right now. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Juniper. Carly, let's set coordinates for Oregon and Beamer back and please stay safe. Stay safe out there. Let us know how the projects are going. All right. Will do. Thank you all so much. Have a good night. Well, Carly, once again, Juniper impressed us and in informed us and just 
is amazing in terms of her breadth of knowledge. Yeah. Blown away, but mostly, but mainly from the story of how, how they've been on the ground for these protests. And I've and been we're just reading this stuff. Of, she's, she's living yeah. it. Absolutely. I've been, following, I've been following a great deal on what they've been doing on Twitter and no, what's been going down in Portland in a lot of ways is a microcosm for what we may be seeing over the next few months in this country. And I'll, and I'll say it's unnerving. And it gives me pause going forward as to where we could be over the next few months. I mean, I, I would encourage all of our people among the, among the um, transporter room crew, as I like to call our fans now, to really look out for one, one another, check in on one another. And as we, uh, if you choose to get involved, be safe and stick together and hold hands. We're going to need each other's courage over these next months ahead. Amen. Amen. Speaking of things we can do together, uh, we've been watching Star Trek Lower Decks, and now comes word. We have a new trailer for Star Trek Discovery, plus a new trailer dropped just this week for The Mandalorian Season 2. I and just I'm... recently got Disney, so I'm going to check it out. Awesome, Disney+. Plus. And I just read that Noah Hawley, a director who's been charged with one of the three potential Star Trek movies, has decided to bring a brand new crew to the Star Trek universe. If his movie gets made, it won't be the Kirk crew, it won't be the Picard crew, not Deep Space Nine, not the Voyager crew, not Enterprise, none of them. Something brand new. I think that's what Star Trek needs. I think that's what all these franchises need. If they're going to continue new mythos, we need new blood. We need fresh ideas. Something like a Lower Decks. That's what I works at Lower Decks, right? Brand actually, new people. Which, yeah, which is actually just a really fun idea that oh, I think so can fun. build something in time. It'll, it'll build something. I think it'll hit the stride. But I think that's what I think we need in science fiction and fantasy as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think this moment is as good. I think this is actually a prime moment for a new mythos. Well, look at Mandalorian. Mandalorian is Star Wars without any of the Star Wars characters, and it's still great. In a sense, there's a representation of the old, but it's in a new format. Yeah. And I like well, that. You're going to love it. Trust me. Oh, I'm, oh, I've seen the first ones. Oh, okay, good. I've seen the first season. That, that is what's convinced me to just go ahead with Disney+. Plus. Okay. Is all the interesting things that they're doing outside of the movie realm. Because I think the short form realm, I think, will be the future of the canon as a whole. And I think that works for that canon. I'm looking yeah. forward to the new Star Trek, whatever that's going to be. Guess what, though? Star Trek Discovery, if you miss season one, it's going to be on CBS on free TV starting next week, next Thursday like, night. That's good to see. And I hope that I hope that some other offerings also eventually make it up to, yeah. quote unquote, the big league. Yeah, because I, so. I think that's one of the... I think that I like the fact that their services like All Access and Peacock, but I think sooner or later, let people get it there. Let people, let everyone see it, not just pay for it. Well, that's all we have time for. Carly, thank you for joining me. Steady as she goes. Live long and prosper. 